Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Would you read now with me the word of God? They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, you know, it says they went into Capernaum because Jesus has just called Simon, Andrew, James, and John into followership, into discipleship. So Jesus has just begun to call some disciples, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, they go into the synagogue, and Jesus begins to teach. So, verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Verse 29, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with the fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, they waited till sunset because that was the end of the Sabbath, and now it's okay to travel and to move about. Verse 33, and the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Would you pray with me? God, help us in the moments to come to comprehend this Scripture. Lord, we, we know that every time we engage the text of Scripture, you show us something new, you show us uh, something deeper, something more profound, something more relevant to our lives. I pray, God, today would be one of those days where uh, that you would take your Scripture and you would take our lives and our church and our situation here in 2017, and God, you would, you would speak truth into our lives in such a way that we would uh, be edified and built up as your church, edified and built up as individual Christians, and equipped, God, to live on mission for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the disciples have, have just been called into fellowship with Jesus, into followership of Jesus, and that's a big deal. They've, they've left family, they've left fishing, they've left finances in order to follow after Jesus. And one of the questions that you might have as you read this story, as you're someone that's engaging the gospel, is, is how can they do that? Or how, why would they persist in following after this Jesus? I mean, why Jesus? And so what we get in verses 21 to 34 is what I like to call a day in the life of Jesus. It's, it's one day in the life of Jesus, that Mark is going to highlight to demonstrate for us 
the authority that Jesus has in our lives. The authority that he has as the king of the kingdom. He's just told us that the kingdom is near. And now we're going to get a preview of the reality that the king has come. The kind of power that he has. The authority that he has. When I was a young man, there was a video game that was called NBA Jams. I don't know if any of you remember that. I was not much of a video gamer, but I enjoyed NBA Jams. And one of the moves on NBA Jams was you could get the basketball, and if you dunked it just right, slam dunked it over somebody, it would say, it would come on and would say, with authority, because you had just slam dunked on somebody and demonstrated the authority that you had to score that basket. And this, in a, in a way, is Mark's way of saying, Jesus is a slam dunk. Jesus, you can, you can follow after Jesus, you can put all your eggs in Jesus' basket because he has ultimate authority. There, there's no authority greater than the authority that Jesus has. He's a reliable authority. And so Mark's going to show us that we should follow Jesus. All right, if you, if you want the sermon in a sentence this morning, we should follow Jesus and don't worry, you're going to get all four of these points again, so you don't have to write real quickly. I didn't have it done in time for Thursday. I apologize. So it's more than filling a blank. It's, it's right down an entire sentence. But we should follow Jesus because He is the authoritative answer to the questions the Scriptures raise. Second, the unclean spirits recognize His authority and obey Him. Thirdly, He raises up the sick to serve Him. And finally, His healing of one can lead to healing for many. First, Jesus is the answer to the questions the scriptures raise. Jesus is the answer to the question the scriptures raise. The disciples follow Jesus into Capernaum, the place that Jesus calls home after leaving Nazareth. Edward says this, most if not all of Capernaum's inhabitants were Jews So upon his arrival, Jesus immediately, verse 21, goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. I love that. Here you have the one who is Sabbath rest going into the synagogue on the Sabbath. The one that they are anticipating by every Sabbath day going into the synagogue. When is God going to send his Sabbath rest? When is God going to send the one who brings us into the peaceable kingdom? Sabbath rest is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he rocks their world in verse 21. He goes into the synagogue and he says the one who is Sabbath rest is here. We, we don't know the exact content of his teaching. He doesn't teach, however, like the scribes who knew the minutiae of the scriptures but missed the Messiah who was there. Instead, he spoke as one having authority, someone with an answer. Someone who put a period on the end of an unending sentence. The scribes like to raise questions well, and possibilities. And fee- you know, well, maybe this is feasible. Well, I feel like this might be what it means. I feel like this might be what it means. And Jesus walks in and he says, I am what it means. As God, Jesus is the source of the scriptures. And as son and servant of God who Mark has been revealing to us in the first part of his gospel, the one who's come in power to defeat Satan and rescue sinners, he is the subject of the Scriptures. Jesus is both the source and the subject 
of the Holy Scriptures. So when Jesus teaches the Bible, He's teaching about Himself. You cannot get any greater authority than that. That's why, North Roanoke, we love and read and preach the Bible. It's why we study the Bible in Sunday school classes. It's why some of you go to something called Bible Study Fellowship, or you get in a small group during the week. We love the Bible because the Bible is the always reliant, never errant Word of God that shows us Jesus, God's Son, and how to have life in Him. We love the Bible because it leads us to love and worship Jesus. But the Jews, and especially religious leaders like the scribes, often miss the point. Jesus rebukes them in John 5, 39 and 40 in this way. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about Me and you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. It's not enough to study the Bible. We must be changed by the One to whom the Bible points. And one of the greatest evidences that we've really been changed by Jesus is the desire and the effort to obey the Word of God that speaks of Him. Think about this for a minute. There's all sorts of basis of authority in your life. Some of you might say, well, experience is my authority. I do things because of how they make me feel. You might say, I drink coffee because it makes me feel good. Others of you, your source of authority is tradition. You might say, well, I drink instant Folgers because that's what my father and my grandfather did. And I would say to you, some traditions are worth breaking. <clears throat> or you might say, reason is my source of authority. My ability to think it through, to make it logical, to rationalize my behavior. You might say, I drink coffee in moderation because recent studies have confirmed that it's actually good for your heart and for your brain to drink coffee in moderation. To which I would say that's true. Amen. Have a cup of coffee. Now, any, any of these sources of authority may be good reasons for you to drink coffee, but they are not good guides for Christian living. Experience, reason, tradition... None of them are good guides in and of themselves for the Christian life. There's going to be times in your life that you don't feel like following Jesus. Some of you super spiritual people out there, oh, can't believe he said that. No, it, it's hard sometimes to follow Jesus. There's going to be times in your life that what Jesus calls us to do doesn't seem to make sense in the moment. We can't wrap our mind around it. God, everything here says that I should stay because... Uh, Family is perfect. Finances are perfect. The conditions are perfect. And God says, no, get out of the boat and go way over here. There's nothing rational about what Jesus sometimes calls us to do, at least in the moment. It seems that way. There's going to be times that Jesus challenges what we've accepted by tradition rather than by God's truth. In other words, to follow Jesus, we must subject our experiences and our ability to reason, it doesn't mean we lose our ability to reason. It doesn't mean we lose our connection with tradition. But all of those things fall under the superior authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed as the authority in God's holy word. He's the authority. To obey the totality of Scripture is to obey Jesus. Lane writes this, 
Jesus' word presented with a sovereign authority which permitted neither debate nor theological reflection confronts the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon the whole person. There's no aspect of your life that does not fall under the authority of Jesus. Aiken adds this, Jesus has the right not only to decide what is true, but also to demand a decision. His authority demands a decision from every single person. There's a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? That He is Lord. He's the authority. Jesus is the answer who puts an end to the excuse that all we have are questions. And to the lie that all we need is just a little help on our journey. And that kind of authority, verse 22, look at what it did. It amazed people. The word amazed includes a range of reactions from astonishment to incredulity. Some are drawn to His authority. Others are repelled and offended by His authority. And especially, no doubt, the scribes who enjoyed the first seats in the synagogues and people rose to their feet when they entered a room and now Jesus comes into the room and says, I am what God has said. I am the answer, the one who can deliver from the forces of darkness and death. And He is about to prove it. Because just then, or immediately in verse 23, a man is there with an unclean spirit and the spirit cries out and we discover that the unclean spirits recognize Jesus' authority and they obey Him. You see, Jesus' authority is proven not just in His teaching, but in His ability to command the demons to flee. A demon makes His presence known and speaks to Jesus. Now, what are unclean spirits? Unclean spirits are demons. Demons are unclean spirits. The word demon is more frequently used in the New Testament than unclean spirits, but they're synonymous And Danny Aiken summarizes the Bible's teaching on demons in this way. Unclean spirits are likely the angels who followed Satan when he fell. From Revelation 12.4, it seems that a third of the angels fell with Satan in his rebellion against God. Some are free to roam, others are confined. They are powerful, but they are not all-powerful. They are under Satan's control, and they can do this. They can promote disunity. In a church. They can propagate false doctrine. They can inflict disease. They can cause mental difficulty. And they can hinder Christian growth. And Aiken adds this. They can oppress believers, but they cannot possess believers. They can't possess believers because the Spirit of God is on the inside of a genuine believer. And greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. We are indwelled by the same Holy Spirit who indwelled Christ, as the kingdom of God, now goes head to head with the power structure of evil. And what Mark is showing us is that Christ wins. In verse 24, the unclean spirit asks, what business do we have with each other? And notice the spirit says, we and not me. There's one spirit, but he says, we. And the reason that he says, we and not me, is because Jesus' mission is not simply to defeat this one demon. This one demon is illustrative of the whole power structure of the forces of darkness. And Jesus has come to lay waste to the entire demonic power structure. 
The unclean spirit knows the business. He knows full well the business that Jesus has with him. He has the unfinished business of destroying them and their rebellion once and for all. Notice the unclean spirit is an accurate theologian. Do you know you can have all your theology right and be lost and bound for hell? The demons prove this. It's not enough to have right information about who Jesus is. The Bible is not about a bunch of information. It's about life transformation. If it was just about information, then the demons would be disciples. You can come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and get, oh, that was a good message. That was loaded with theological truth. There was a great word about who Jesus was there. That was very interesting. Please don't ever call my sermons interesting. I, I don't want to be interesting. I want you to get the information from the head into the heart that God might transform you by the Spirit of God because you're not just a, like a demon who's got information about Jesus. You've got the information working its way in your heart, transforming you by the Holy Spirit and making you more and more like Jesus. But the demon is accurate in his theology. He points out that Jesus is from Nazareth. And He's the Holy One of God. We see His humanity and His deity, or at least His divine connection with God. The combination of titles reminds us all the way back, takes us all the way back to Samson. Do you remember Samson, the warrior judge of Israel, who, was a, who took the vow of the Nazarite and was devoted to God? He was Israel's most effective warrior judge. And through his death, he defeated more enemies of God in his death than he had defeated in all of his life. Jesus is the greater Samson who brings total victory over all of God's enemies. And it seems as though the Spirit even knows a bit of his Old Testament. Because he's using these references back to Samson who conquers the enemies of God back as a judge. And he's saying, here's one who's coming in the likeness of Samson to trample and to conquer and to bring victory on behalf of God. Aiken writes this, Men may be confused as to the identity of Jesus, but never so with the demons. They knew Him, verse 34, and they feared Him. What a contrast with foolish, fallen, and unbelieving humans. In verse 25, we see that the one who teaches with authority is the one who conquers the unclean spirits of this world. When Jesus speaks a word of rebuke and commands the spirit to be quiet or to hush and to come out of the man, what must the spirit do? He must obey. There is no spiritual deliverance or healing apart from submission to the authority of Christ the Word. You want to know where healing and deliverance from the forces of darkness is found, it's found when you obey the Word of God. In verse 26, we see the Spirit throwing the man into convulsions, and he's crying out with a loud voice as he departs. And the dramatic moment demonstrates the reality and the severity of demonic activity and the superiority of Jesus' saving and supernatural power. In a moment... A man who has been oppressed by demonic forces is set free. And all, verse 27, the word is emphasized, it's front-loaded in the sentence, everybody there in the synagogue is amazed. And what do they say? 
they say they've never seen an authority like this. And they ask, what is this? Verse 27. The teaching seems to be new. Not new in the mind of God, but new to the hearers who are forced to consider that their need for deliverance is far deeper than they have understood. They're looking for a political rescuer. They're not looking for somebody to rescue them from the darkness of sin and from demonic forces. All we need is a king who will come and rule over us. But they don't understand before they can be delivered politically, they've got to be delivered from the darkness that has overtaken their hearts. And Jesus Christ has come to do that. Of course, the demons recognize who Jesus is. And then in verse 25 and again in verse 34, Jesus commands the demons to not disclose his identity. You see this happen several times in Mark's gospel, and you might be wondering, why does Jesus conceal his identity? I I thought the whole reason he came was so that we would know who he is. So what's going on with Jesus concealing his identity? And ultimately, Jesus is concealing his identity so that he can get to the cross in the way that he wants to get to the cross. That he can get to the cross in a way that is consistent with God's plan. Furthermore, he wants us to know that he's not a local miracle worker calling attention to himself. There were occasionally miracle workers who would perform miracles in a locale, but he's not restricted to one locality. He's on a worldwide mission to save sinners through death in service to his Father. Secondly, he wanted to carve out some private times for teaching his disciples. If he was just running around working miracles all the time and people find out who he is, there would be more people than he could handle, and then he could not teach his disciples the truths of the kingdom. And finally, he wanted to express his humility as the suffering servant of the Lord to draw a contrast with the self-promoting ways of the political and religious leaders of his day. The political and religious leaders wanted you to know who they were. They wanted to be out front. They wanted all the attention. And Jesus came as the humble, suffering servant. Though the crowds and disciples do not know the demon's thoughts, we do. We get to read the gospel as one who knows the full story. And that means that we should almost expect to see what comes next in the gospel. And it's this truth, that Jesus uses his authority to raise up the sick for service to him. Jesus doesn't just come to show off. He doesn't just come to parade about. He comes and He uses His authority over life and death and darkness and demons and He uses it to raise people up out of their sickness into service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has come for a cosmic battle. He's going to war against the forces of darkness and yet ordinary people get to benefit from His victory. Isn't that awesome? He lets us be the beneficiaries of the cosmic war that he has come to win. After the amazement at the synagogue, the disciples muster up the courage to tell Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law. I don't know about you, but after I've seen Jesus teach as one having authority and cast out a demon as one having authority, there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, Jesus, uh, my mother-in-law's sick. But there's another part of me that's like, I don't know if I want to say anything to this guy. I mean, wow. What what do we do with this Jesus? And yet the disciples go back to Simon's house, Simon Peter's house, and they're in Capernaum, and 
They mentioned to Jesus the need of Simon's mother-in-law who has a fever. Which, by the way, if Simon Peter had a mother-in-law, that means that Peter had a wife. And the idea that pastors can't be married has no basis in Scripture. Praise Jesus, glory, hallelujah. That's just a digression. But there it is right there in the Bible. Simon had a mother-in-law, which means Simon had a wife, which means pastors can be married. Praise you, Jesus. All right. With just a touch, look at what just happens here. With just a touch from Jesus, her fever departs. Verse 31. Luke chapter 4, verse 39 adds that Jesus rebukes the fever verbally. And we see that Jesus has absolute authority in both the natural and the supernatural realms. He can cast out demons. He can heal a common ordinary fever. He is the Lord of all. He can heal the diseased. He can deliver the demon oppressed. He's Lord in the synagogue. He's Lord in Simon's house. There is no place where where there is an authority greater than the authority of the one who commands demons and cancels fevers. You can't find an authority greater than the one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the slam dunk, who comes with authority. Edward says the healing of a fever shows Jesus' solidarity with common people and common needs. Some of you, you got a little preschooler or a toddler or a grade school kid and they've, they've got a fever and you're tempted to think, well, Jesus has bigger problems than this. Jesus has got more going on in the world than this. He doesn't have time for my needs. What this miracle shows us is that Jesus even has concerns for the common, run-of-the-mill, ordinary, physical maladies of life. And notice what Jesus does. He raises her up, verse 31. It's not an accident that Mark uses the word raises her up. It's the exact same word that is used in the Bible of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, God has not only raised the Lord, but He will also raise us up through His power. Mark is foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do through His death and His resurrection. He's not just going to cancel one fever, He's going to cancel the infection of sin. Because where there is a fever, there is infection. And as Mark's gospel progresses, we will see that God has come to raise us up from physical death. How? By forgiving our spiritual sin infection. Jesus' authority extends to our physical bodies and He gives physical and bodily healing to all who trust in Him. Now let's be clear. For some, that physical healing can be enjoyed right now. For some, He will work a miracle, and He heals, and He delivers temporarily. We know it's temporarily because death still ensues for everybody. Statistically, one out of one people still die until Jesus comes back, right? But for some, there is a a touch, there's a prayer, and there is physical healing in the here and now. But even when there's not, even for those who must wait for eternity, all who come to Jesus, for all who come to Jesus, He will raise you up. By dealing with the sickness of your sin. Why? So that like Simon's mother-in-law, you can be raised up to serve Jesus and His growing community. Notice who she serves. She doesn't serve just Jesus. She serves Jesus and His disciples. She serves them. In other words, when God rescues you, He rescues you to be a servant to the local church of God. 
to the growing community of disciples that Jesus is making until He comes again. And when that truly begins to happen, when Jesus really starts to eradicate our sin infection and He raises people up to service in His kingdom, look out. Because number four is going to happen. His healing of one can lead to healing for many. His healing of one can lead to healing for many. When Jesus proves His authority by delivering people from demonic devastation and disease, people notice. As soon as the Sabbath ends, people start bringing all who need healing from the city to Jesus. And they discover, I love this quotation, from Edwards, they discover the door of Jesus' compassion and power is open to them. Isn't it good to know that the door of Jesus' compassion and power is open to all who want to draw near to the door? Look, Look at the picture. The whole city, we're told in verse 33, had gathered at the door. And what they find is there's no malady he could not remedy, no demon he could not destroy. When it tells us he heals many, it doesn't mean that he was selective. It means that as many as were coming to the door, Jesus was willing to heal. Is that that not what we pray for? North Roanoke. What, What consumes your mind during the week? What consumes your minds and thought patterns when you think about the church of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? I I long for us to think like this. To understand that Christ has come into the kingdom. He has come, rather, bringing the kingdom. And He has created the local church of God to be the garden of God in the middle of the wilderness and to be the place where we see Jesus so at work that people want to come and check it out and be near the door of Jesus' healing and compassion. I I pray and long that we would be a place where Jesus is so at work that people are compelled to come and be healed by Jesus. Though we don't always see immediate physical healing, we long to see Jesus touch our city with His presence. To transform lives so that people can be made whole. And we will see this happen when Jesus is recognized as the authority in our lives. Where Jesus is the one we adore and the reason that we exist and the reason that we gather, He will work. And where Jesus is working, there's no demon, there's no depression or anxiety or bitterness or anger or jealousy or pettiness or any other thing that so often threatens to dominate our lives that Jesus cannot overcome and banish and cast out. I am fond of saying that Roanoke belongs to Jesus, and this is why. Because if Jesus can impact an entire city in one evening, there's no reason to pray that our whole valley would recognize their need to be healed and come to Jesus now before it is too late. Our city belongs to our King, and we need to live for our King in order that others might come and want to go near the door of God's compassion and His power and His healing through the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we submit to that authority... Word can't help but get out. What does it mean for us? 
The authority of Jesus means for us, North Roanoke Baptist Church, that we must not lose sight of the victory that Jesus has come to give. We must live lives that prove the authority of Jesus. And when our lives prove that Jesus has raised us up to serve Him, watch and see. The multitudes of our valley won't be far behind. Jesus is a slam dunk. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for showing us in one day what Jesus can do. Just one day. Lord, I pray that your church, your gathered church, would be characterized by an abundance of confidence in Jesus. Lord, that as we look into the the dark things of this world, as we look into the things of this world that confuse us and challenge us and even depress us, that we would look more confidently to Jesus Christ and the authority that He has to bring life from death, to bring light from darkness, and to bring transformation to an entire city. God, we long to be agents of your authority in our city. We long for people to be converted, to be transformed, and to be raised up into service for you. For you are worthy of it. You are all glorious. You are mighty. You are worthy. And you are good. And we love you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I don't know what your need is, but if you say, I want to be a part of a team that believes Jesus is worthy, and glorious, and good, and still in the business of bringing life transformation to individuals and families, we'd invite you to come and say, I want to be a part of North Roanoke Baptist Church. For the others of you, you may have never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The sources of authority in your life are either what you think, what you feel, or what you do, because it's just what you do. You've never come to a place that what you do is entirely surrendered to who Jesus is. Come this day and give your life to Jesus and find life everlasting. I invite you to stand as we sing.